Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This is the uh, the penultimate class in our uh, 2022 Truth to Happiness Dhamma study. I'll let Dustin sit down. And um, we're touching on three subjects that are interrelated, precepts, paramitas, and uh, what true refuge means. So the precepts are simply guidelines for behavior. <coughs> that are informed by taking refuge, are made possible by taking refuge. Uh, and the paramitas are qualities of mind that are developed uh, as a direct result of taking true refuge. So that'll become hopefully a little bit more clear <laughs> after I teach it. If not, you know, uh, see, I'll, I'll, I'll sit, tell who this person is. I'll, I'll give some background after I say this. Jiddu Krishnamurti often said, look at the lives you're living. He was stressing the importance of being mindfully present in thought, word, and deed in our interactions with others and with ourselves. So how many people know who Krishnamurti was or heard of him even? You might have read one. I thought, I thought you would. Anybody online? So Jiddu Krishnamurti, to me, is one of the most interesting people in our time. <laughs> um, some of you may have heard of this Theosophical Society. They're still, uh, they're still around today, mostly mostly in, uh, in uh, the UK, uh, but they still have a presence here in the United States. That was found by uh, Madame Blavatsky and C.W. Ledbetter, who were um, very influential people in the magical, mystical movements uh, in this country and then around the world. Uh, again, their, their organization is still flourishing. And they came across, I, I, I don't want to get too deep into this, but Madame Blavatsky had a vision one day that she could find the next Buddha. <clears throat> and she also heard that, uh, and it's very murky how she came across Krishnamurti, but she heard that that Buddha was born to a family in India, uh, the Krishnamurtis. And they convinced the, their parents that, that their son, Jiru, uh, was the next Buddha. They took him, groomed him to be the next Buddha. Um, and he was a remarkable man. Uh, he started teaching around the age of 14 or 15, and very quickly he was teaching to hundreds and sometimes thousands of people. Uh, you can still find his books and his teachings online, by the way. Uh, he's someone who um, had a profound understanding of the nature of what it means to be a human being, but he lacked one key thing, and it's he, he lacked the ability to present a path for other people to do the same. So he would say this, this, what he said, look at the lives you're living. If you found some old videos, he, almost every video he would start out, or every talk, he would start out by saying, look at the lives you are living. And what he was talking about is a deep and profound presence in this moment. But again, he didn't, he didn't have the understanding or the ability to teach people how to do what he had naturally developed. At the age of 21, he left the Theosophical Society behind and, and did his own thing. Um, he established schools all over the world, and some of those schools are still there. He had a profound effect, t still today, on our social fabric. Again, he just, he just really lacked the understanding of how others could get there, which is what Siddhartha discovered. So, 
Look at the lives you're living. How do we, how do we look at that? Well, the way we interact with people are the lives we're living. How I act, how I'm talking to you right now is a reflection of the quality of my mindfulness, what I'm holding in mind. In other words, if I'm an angry, ideological SOB, that's how I would present myself. And, and if you listen to me, you would become the same in, in that way. That, 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 this is called conditioned thinking. And again, look at, look at the world we're living in. The Buddha taught a way for us to regain control of our minds in very simple and direct ways by looking at the lives we're living. As a way of integrating the Four Noble Truths into our daily lives, and as a simple and effective way of being mindful of how we relate to the phenomenal world, the Buddha gave us precepts. Precepts are simply principles for conduct. By following the precepts in thought, word, and deed, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, we are living within the framework of the Eightfold Path. Again, the simplicity of this path. Really, all we have to do is develop enough concentration so that we can do what we're being taught here, looking at the lives we're living, but in a dispassionate, impersonal way as life occurs. The Buddha taught five basic lay precepts and then three, then three additional principles for those considering monastic life, and I'll qualify that in a second, and sometimes for those on retreat. This line I have to change. The Buddha also taught, depending on the source in the subsequent Buddhist sect or school, 200 or more precepts for monastics. The Buddha didn't teach those um, in some schools. Every, every modern school altered in some way, in some ways, in a, in a, uh, a great and corrupted way, these, these rules for behavior within a Sangha. So even during the Buddhist time, he started out with five, uh, five of these precepts. And as the Sangha grew and difficulties arose with people interacting with each other, he started adding different precepts or different, really just going a little bit beyond precepts and you could call them rules. Like one rule that was um, introduced, and I'll just, uh, if you want to understand the, the Vinaya, you, you can read the suttas uh, and you'll come across this. There's a story about a, a visiting dignitary who was coming. And during that time, uh, and up until recently, uh, we didn't have uh, indoor plumbing and people used pots. And so one day, uh, one of the monks was going to empty his, uh, his chamber pot, and he did. He emptied it over the side of the... He was up on the roof of his hut, and he threw it out the side of his building, and it just so happened that a local dignitary was walking by and got hit with it. And so the Buddha changed, made a rule, and it's in, it's in some of the Vinayas, you can still see it, is we don't throw our waste off of roofs anymore. Practical rules for living within the Sangha. And these are also practical uh, rules and they get right to the heart of the matter. Most of the additional monastic precepts are for contact within a spiritual community or monastery. They develop in different schools for different reasons. The five Buddhist precepts for lay people are refrain from killing or taking life. Act with goodwill and loving kindness. Again, these need a little qualification because the Buddha is obviously talking about not killing other human beings out of anger or ideology or religion, which was common during the Buddhist time, just as common today, look at modern jihad. But, but also understanding that um, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a way of taking life that has nothing to do with physical violence, and it has to do with how we treat others in mind. How we, we, do we treat people with violence in the way we're holding our view of them in mind? That's a form of killing, and an obvious example would be character assassination through gossip. 
That is a form of killing. It's canceling people out. Look at what's going on in the world today. We've made a sport out of killing, haven't we? Calling it or canceling and, and justifiable cancel to some people. We're putting up thicker and higher walls today than we've ever done before. And we feel justified by doing it. The Buddha said, stop doing it. And he said it 2,600 years ago out of compassion because it hurts. Act with goodwill and love and kindness all the time. And we do that. We develop the ability to do that because our minds are well concentrated and we don't fall into confusion, ideology, and so anger. Refrain from stealing or taking what is not freely given. Be generous. That one precept can affect every area of our life. Not just not walking through a store, a store and thinking you have a right to a TV or something else. Not taking what is freely given. How do we do this in very subtle ways? We even have a, war, a word, or a phrase for it. In, re, in relationships, we take hostages. People would, 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 however they establish their position or power, use this in a way of taking what is not freely given, another person's presence. Are we manipulative in what we're saying or are we, are we straightforward and honest? Do we have an actual foundation for what we're saying in the world and how we're acting in the world or are we, are we acting out of a fabrication? Because if we are, we're going to always be taking what is not freely given. That's the only way we could survive in a mind like that. I did it most of my life. We all do it inadvertently. It's not right or wrong. In fact, I would say it's not even morally wrong. But it is something that we need to recognize and as Dhamma practitioners abandon. Because that's the only way to live peacefully in the world. If we're going to live peacefully with ourselves and stop manipulating our own way of thinking, we have to offer that same common peace to other people. Refrain from false, unnecessary, misleading, or harmful or impatient speech. Speak with, con- with kindness, honesty, and mindfulness. Excuse me. But I think you've realized, especially coming to these classes and the straightforwardness and the way we talk with each other, that sometimes a straightforward and honest thought framed by the Dhamma may not seem kind, but it can be the kindest thing of all. You hear, uh, think, uh, think about the Buddha's interactions with Vachagoda, for instance. Vachagoda would come to the Buddha. Throughout, there's, there's eight or nine suttas where Vachagoda, uh, the Vachagoda was a wanderer. He came in and out of the Buddha's life, always asking the same question. A question would be about magical and mystical establishments, and the Buddha would always shoot him down by saying, Vachi, it's your question. I, I add Vachi. I don't think the Buddha said that. But. Vachi, it's your questions that are confusing you. Let go of your questions. Some would say, well, isn't that dismissive? No, that's the Buddha getting directly to Vachi and telling him what he needs to know. It's our questions that are confusing us. And we get into these great questions. Where am I going? What happens to me after life? Where did I come from? Uh, even the magical, uh, can I attain non-physical realms in my body? We, we attribute magic to the Buddha that he could bilocate and fly around the cosmos. It's said that, 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 that young Siddhartha, a human being, also gave, taught, gave teachings in seek the Buddhist heaven. And those teachings were, were, were preserved by the snake people, the Nagas, Nagarjuna, and that's where he took his name from. It was preserved by the Nagas till the human beings were able to understand this teaching. That's a common Buddhist teaching. The Buddha was a human being. He had no way of getting there or even wanting to go there. But that is the way that we, are, we, we, are, we create these scenarios, these fabrications that allows us to interject things into something called Buddhism that the Buddha never intended. It starts with just this thing, speaking honestly to others and to ourselves. 
if in this moment I find the need to lie to you, it's because I don't respect you and I think I need to, to, to manipulate you. That's why we do these things. If I'm doing it to you, I'm doing it to myself. I'm doing it to myself. And that is the most hurtful thing we can ever do. Give ourselves a line of BS, excuse my almost language. And that gets to the heart of the matter. And again, these on the surface, these precepts uh, are simple and very easy to do, but when we start applying them within the framework of the Eightfold Path, we realize how subtle and profound these simple be- acts of behavior that all of our mamas, thank you, Sangha Mom, taught us when we were three years old. If only I listened. <laughs> Especially today, I shouldn't say that. Refrain from sexual misconduct or using sex in a selfish or harmful manner. Be content in giving. That last one is so important. If we're practicing the Dhamma, and I know this gets some people uncomfortable, but imagine how wonderful your sexual relationships will be if you're focused on generosity rather than what you can get out of it. And I think we all understand that. And again, it's an important to, to remind everyone, because again, it's a, bis, a big misunderstanding that the Buddha taught celibacy. He never did. He never said that there was anything wrong with sex, but he did say that when you're living in a close community, you got to stop chasing after each other because you, you can't develop the Dhamma in that way. That's the only, only restriction he ever put on sex. Refrain from the use of intoxicants so to be mindful and thoughtful. Uh, that, that is an obvious one, but we, you know, drugs and alcohol and that type of thing. But intoxicants can also be any, any compulsive behavior that distracts us away from the moment. And that could be golf, hello Kevin, it could be shopping, it could, it could be sex, uh, it could be anything. And right now, uh, in the last uh, 20 years or so, we found the greatest distraction, isn't it, of all time, called social media, and we're all in love with it. There's a great book that I may teach a class on right now that you should all read called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. Uh, it has nothing to do with Buddhism, but it is brilliant in how he gets to how we insist on distracting ourselves and that we have institutionalized that in, in, our, in the fabric of our society. We've made it almost impossible to not distract ourselves. It's a great book. You should read it. Okay, that's the, that's the five precepts. The paramitas. The word paramita means great perfections. These are qualities of mind that at first generate through Dhamma practice and then to be mindful of them as a way of remaining focused on the Dhamma. Incorporating through right intention to hold to these perfections of thought, word, and deed, again, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, develops focus and patience. The paramitas also provide a framework for viewing progress along the way. So we can look at these qualities of mind. Are they present now? Are they deepening now? I'm practicing the Dhamma correctly, if that's the case. Sariputta, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, questioned the Buddha one day. How many qualities are there to be developed in the Dhamma? The Buddha responded, there are ten qualities, and I can say there are only ten qualities developed in the Dhamma. What are these ten? And again, ask yourself if you, can, if you don't own these. And you all do. Giving, virtue, renunciation, meaning renunciate, renouncing ignorance, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity are qualities developed in the Dhamma. And I bet if you asked yourselves, have these increased since you've been practicing the Dhamma, each and every one of you would say yes. 
Does anybody would anybody say no that you're not you're not recognizing these as developing uh, more more profoundly in your life? Anyone? Anyone? I don't see anybody with a hand up. Good. Again, this is this is um, these precepts and paramitas are are aspects of normal human behavior that most of us can't develop or access because of ignorance of four noble truths. We're too caught up in surviving in the world and maintaining this is me that we can't act with loving kindness all the time. We can't be honest all the time because at times we feel threatened and we have to be manipulative. We're realizing that. We're recognizing how stressful that life is. I would even use the word awful because when I look back on how um, disturbed and distracted my mind was because of a lack of understanding, what an awful way to live. And the Buddha would refer to that as a constricted place, a place of confinement. And think about that. That was, that was how my mind was. It was so tight with fear and anger and confusion, so stuck in ideologies of how I should be rather than what I was. And I lived a good life. I, I was brought up in you know, middle-class America. I had everything anybody could ever want. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't get a brand new Mercedes when I turned 17, but I never had to go look for food or clothing. I had a nice house. I had relatively sane brothers and sisters. And I was miserable. And I turned to drugs and alcohol out of the misery and out of, a, out of I think, genetics as well. I, I was driven that way. But it wasn't, and I, then I got into spirituality, got into New Age stuff, I got into Buddhism. But it wasn't until I came to this simple Dhamma that forced me to look at the way I thought about myself and others that I was able to change the way I thought about myself and others. Because the Dhamma focused me that way. Instead of outward, instead of what I could get or what I needed to fix in order to get something, all I had to do was change my mind. And I knew what I had to change because I had the framework of the Eightfold Path to pay attention to my behavior, to be mindful of it. Giving or dana is the first per perfection and incorporates all of the other perfections. Great generosity. We talk about that. Donna is both a physical generosity. I, there's a particular charity that I give money to every month. Not important which one that is. I'd be happy to tell you individually if you want to know, but I'm not trying to promote a charity. But it also, the, the most generous thing we can do is develop the Dhamma and share it. Because it's the most powerful thing. It's the, most, it's the richest thing we can give to another person. Of course, we have to develop it our first first if we want to be able to be generous with the Dhamma. That's what the Buddha exemplified his whole life. That's the great generosity. He forgo great power and great wealth, a life of incredible comfort that he could have had, and taught the Dhamma at a great generosity, at a great Dhamma. In fact, there, are, there is an aspect of each paramita, of this paramita and all the others, other ones, the great perfections, these are qualities we we'll all possess and are developed further. As the behaviors rooted in greed, greed aversion, and deluded, delusion are put aside, the ten paramitas can be integrated into Dhamma practice by bringing each paramita to mind directly after jhana meditation and generating the intention to remain mindful of each paramita. So it's just a little aspect of study. You could write it down on a piece of paper. You're done with your meditation practice. Just, just review it. Just read it. And remind yourself, this is how a Dhamma practitioner behaves in the world. 
And very quickly, you'll recognize, if you haven't already, where you're not. What do you do when you recognize you might have a little bit of greed left in you? You're not quite as generous. Well, the first thing you do is you bash your head against the wall. <laughs> the first thing you do is take a breath and remind yourself you're a human being. And the only reason you're acting in, a, in that way is because you are lacking an understanding or a complete understanding of four noble truths. It's not right or wrong. Remember, the Buddha taught, taught the, the three defilements greed, aversion, and deluded thinking as common consequences of human beings rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. It's not bad. And it's not wrong except in relation to developing the Dhamma. If you want to develop a common peaceful mind, if you want to develop full human maturity, it makes sense that you'd have to look at and adjust your behavior in some ways. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. That's supported by right view and right intention and maintained by right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation, or jhana meditation. And again, I don't mean to be too simplistic. It is that simple. Change your mind, change your behavior. <clears throat> These ten perfections of behavior are all aspects of the Eightfold Path, and when developed, free the mind from greed aversion and further diluted thinking. When fully developed, the mind remains at peace and unmoved from impermanence, from the impermanence of phenomenal life. Let me skip ahead. Two, the Ratana Sutta. So, um, these are, this is something, excuse me. The triple refuge, um, often referred to as the three jewels or the triple jewels, are taught in, excuse me, um, I've never come across a Buddhist tradition that doesn't, refer to the refuges in some way. But most of them um, don't get it quite right. Hmm. Uh, they teach that we take refuge in a, uh, a godlike Buddha, meaning we take refuge in the fact that a savior is going to save us. Wrong. The Buddha was a human being. He never set himself out as a savior. We're taught that we take refuge in the Buddha. I mean, I've, I've heard this taught to me. Uh, and endless Buddhas going into the endlessly into the past and, and endlessly into the future. And that there's thousands and thousands of Buddhas. Um, it's just not true. It's not something that the Buddha taught. Maybe there is. But the Buddha that I learned from, and that, made, that his Dhamma made all the sense to me, was a human being and a singular, single Buddha named Siddhartha Gautama. He awakened as a human being. The reason why that's important to understand is I can't take refuge in a God. I'm not. I know I'm not. I look at myself every mirror and say, you ain't, you're no God, boy. You're a human being. But again, that's a liberating thought. I'm trying to be funny. It didn't work. Um, but when I understand that a human being did this, and I also understand and accept the fact that, yeah, I'm a human being. I'm not something more. Then I can take true refuge in that, can I? But I can't take refuge in a God because I'm not. But I do take refuge in a human being did this. And then I can take refuge in understanding that, yeah, he left his Dhamma, he left his teachings. It's still here. It's not hard, it's not easy to find. Well, it is for you because I did all the hard work. Yeah. <laughs> it's still here, it still works. We're, we're all living examples of a 2,600 year old teaching that is still as relevant and effective as it was then today. 
And so we can take refuge in a Dhamma that still works. We can't take refuge in something that is speculative, conceptual, or that we attain the benefits in some future life. But we can take refuge in something that we can directly access. Ahetasiko, come and see for yourself. And the third refuge is something I consider myself so fortunate to be a part of, this Sangha. A well-focused and well-informed Sangha. Excuse me. Because there's no refuge, and I can tell this from, from direct experience, there's no refuge as far as Dhamma refuge in an uninformed and unfocused Sangha. I spent many, many years and many, many Sunday afternoons and Thursday nights I used to go down here and other places, uh, seven-day, ten-day sashins and all these different places, and not one of them was a refuge. It was an activity, sometimes an enjoyable activity, sometimes awful. It was a distraction. I felt like I was doing something useful. I felt kind of new agey at times, you know, kind of cutting edge, a new meditation method, a new idea. And I was getting more and more confused. I was getting more and more angry, more and more frustrated with myself until I came across and took refuge in the simple Dhamma. That's why I emphasize this often. Are we actually taking refuge in Dhamma? Because you cannot develop the Dhamma unless you understand and accept it in this way. A human being did this, he awakened, he left his teaching, and we have a well-focused and well-informed Sangha. At the time, this is the Ratana Sutta. At one time in the city of Asali, it was a time of, of widespread famine and spreading disease. There were many dead bodies as the conditions overwhelmed the ability to properly dispose of bodies. The local citizens sought out the Buddha's help, who was nearby in Rajagaha. The Buddha arrived in Vasali a short time later with a large number of monks, including Ananda. Just before the Buddha's arrival, torrential rains helped the situation somewhat by cleansing the landscape of rotting corpses and clearing the air and water. It was a pretty tough time back then. The Buddha presented this teaching to an entire city overcome by physical and emotional suffering. But prior to his presenting the, this discourse, he instructed his attending monks to walk through the city and do what they could to ease the physical suffering of the, cities, of the citizens and to individually present this teaching. That's an important point there. The Buddha didn't just come out and say, oh, you poor souls, this is what you need to do. Pray to me or pray to this God. You know, prostate yourself a few hundred times and your misery will be resolved in some future life. No. The first thing he did is he attended to the physical needs of those people. The first thing we need to do is attend to our physical needs. We need to take good care of ourselves. We need to, again, eat properly. I'm not talking about any particular diet. We need to get enough rest. We shouldn't overwork ourselves or overplay ourselves. And that's all part of Dhamma practice. It's all part of this teaching. It's, about, it's a part of teaching ourselves, uh, treating ourselves in a gentle way. So then at the formal teaching, the Buddha presented a way to bring true refuge from the stress and suffering of the world and to put an end to all dukkha. Look at the setting. The world is different but the same, isn't it? There's still a lot of rotting corpses around, some, some in positions of power. There's still... This, this chaos in the world today, perhaps more than ever, and I was thinking, should, do I need to talk more about this? And maybe I will, because it seems like we're getting to the brink of something here. Mm -hmm. um, 
But no matter what occurs, the triple refuge still plays. You know, just to mention, if, if Russia goes into Ukraine, the Dom is still here. You know, if another, another variant comes around, the Dom is still here. It's always here. It's been here for 2,600 years. That's the point of it's a true refuge. If it wasn't a true refuge, it would only be applicable at times, like when I went to, to a, a, a monastery on a Sunday. That's when that particular dharma would work, because that's the only time you can practice it, or you know, go to church on Sunday, whatever it is. The Buddha's words, may all beings assemble, have peace of mind. Again, think about the profundity of what the Buddha's teaching. These, this is a whole city that is literally in mental uproar, mental disease. And the first thing he says, may you all have peace of mind. He's reminding those folks that it's, uh, that's up to them and that it is the most valuable thing for a human being to have, peace of mind. May all beings assembled listen mindfully to these words. May you all radiate, again, miserable people coming through an awful time. May you all radiate goodwill and loving kindness to all who offer help and understanding to you. Get out of yourself. Stop being focused on your misery and look at, what, look at the goodness in your life. And we should all, and I'm not saying that, that, you're, that you should take this, everything is positive. That's a very hurtful attitude. Not everything isn't positive. But there is good in everything if you understand what's occurring. There's good in, if you understand suffering, there's good in it because you understand it's an aspect of human life and it's part of being present for this human life. I have to accept it. The Buddha continues, understand this. There is no more precious jewel, no more refuge, no more comfort than the Buddha, the human Buddha. The Buddha saying, in me, he's not holding himself up, he never held himself up as anything other than an awakened human being. But he's saying, look at me, I did it. There's no more refuge than recognizing that in yourself. And then he says, I love these little paragraphs here. As woodland groves in the early heat of summer are crowned with blossoming flowers, so is a sublime dhamma leading to the calm and peace of nirvana. Isn't that nice? The peerless and excellent awakened one, the teacher of true understanding, the teacher of the noble path is the Buddha, the one who has awakened. He's saying, I did it, you can too. Here the, in my words, here the Buddha is not teaching worship of himself. The Buddha often referred to himself as the Tathagata, the one who has gone forth. Meaning he's, the, he's saying, I'm the, I'm the first guy to do it, but I'm just a guy. The Buddha had gone forth from distraction and ignorance, stress and suffering to well-concentrated wisdom, liberation and freedom. Through his own efforts, as we can do, the Buddha awakened. He called himself rightly self-awakened. Again, that's what we're doing. We're becoming rightly self-awakened through our own efforts. The Buddha here is offering himself as the example of one human being going forth on the Eightfold Path and awakening. Taking refuge in the Buddha is understanding that all human beings can go forth from ignorance and attain wisdom and right understanding. There is great inspiration and comfort in understanding that liberation and freedom is possible for all human beings. And again, now that you all understand the Dhamma, does anyone here feel that you can't continue to develop this? And again, please say yes if you, if you really feel that way. Because I want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it is... 
People yell at me when I say it's simple, but it is. It's a simple and direct, at times not easy path. But it's designed for human beings by a human being. He would not be a truly compassionate and wise human being if he taught something that human beings simply couldn't do, like everything else that I practice up until I came across this. Buddha continues, There is no more precious jewel than the teachings of the Buddha, the Dhamma. Understanding this brings true liberation and freedom. The Buddha, calm and mindful, he's talking about himself, has experienced the cessation of clinging and desire. He's saying, I did it. I'm a human being. I just told you that. You can too. I have done it. You can too. The deathless state of nirvana, nirvana uh, or nibbana, depending on uh, Sanskrit or Pali, means, literally means extinguished in those languages, meaning the fire of passion has been extinguished. It doesn't describe some, uh, again, future plane of nothingness or emptiness. The literal translation in the, in, in the Dhamma is the fire has been put out. The fires of self-referential passion have been put out. The deathless state of nirvana has been attained. Deathless. It doesn't mean that we're going to live forever. It means that we're no longer, be, as the Buddha referred to, living a life rooted in ignorance, living a death, a life like death rooted in ignorance. Why is that like a death, a living, a living death? Because we're not present for our life. We're not living in this moment. We're living in the past or the future. That's like a living death. The deathless state of nirvana has been attained. The Buddha teaches the noble eightfold path that unfailingly brings concentration, liberation, and freedom. There is no more precious jewel than the Dhamma. Again, the Buddha is putting himself, his teachings, and a well-focused Sangha on the same level. He's not, again, he's not elevating himself or his teachings as anything special. My words. The Buddha is describing that there is a precious jewel in taking refuge in the path of liberation and freedom. In this setting in Vasali, the, Bu- Vasali, the Buddha is teaching that once practical needs have been taken care of, to turn one's attention to being mindful of the teachings of the Buddha. Again, he's not teaching monks and nuns who are living in a monastery. He's teaching people that are out in the world, just like us. And he's not telling them that there's something special that you need to go to a monastery because I teach teachers, I teach monks and nuns differently than I teach you. No, he never said that. In fact, he said, I teach the same Dhamma. If I ever get through the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, that's one of the most important lines in that. I teach the same Sutta for monks and nuns as well as householders. Nothing different. The Buddha continues, there is no more precious jewel than the Sangha, right here. Understanding this brings true liberation and freedom. The virtuous ones who bring the Dhamma, that's all of us, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Those with steadfast minds, free of clinging, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Those that understand with wisdom the Four Noble Truths, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Those that gain true insight and abandon self-delusion, doubt, and indulgence in meaningless rites and rituals, meaningless rites and rituals, did I repeat that? They are the jewel of the Sangha. We all have the ability to be the jewel of our own Sangha. And we all do that. Everyone here, except Mark because he's just, well, I shouldn't say that, and now Mark because he's come back and joined us, contributes to each and everyone else in the Sangha, don't we? And again, it's the reason why we do this the way we do it. You don't just hear me talk and you go out and live your lives. 
the interaction, the discussion after the talk is just as important as the talk itself. Because it's, because then we're talking about our personal experience of developing the Dhamma. And we stay focused on that because we're all living within the framework of the Eightfold Path. I mean, we don't get into grasping after other refuges. I want to read that again. And indulges in meaningless rites and rituals. They are the jewel of the Sangha. Those beyond despair and evil doings, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Are we on beyond despair and evil doings? If you're not, it just means there's an adjustment to behavior. And again, evil in this sense would be anything that is contrary to the Dhamma. It's not, you know, not good killing someone or something like that. Those whose, whose understandings arises from the support of the Sangha, who can no longer conceal the truth from themselves due to the Sangha, they are the precious jewel of the Sangha. Those whose karma is extinguished, the future of no concern, with rebirth ending, due to the support of the Sangha. This is the precious jewel of the Sangha. Due to the support of the Sangha. We can't do it without each other, without a well-focused and well-informed Sangha. I didn't realize that until I started teaching. I had a really nice... Uh, who left? I had a really nice... Uh, said something. I don't know. Uh, Solo practice. I mean, I was very content in my, my twice-a-day meditations and my study of the Dhamma. And then somebody in the building next door asked me if I would start teaching meditation uh, to raise money for a charity. And again, another auspicious time in my life because that changed everything. And it's so deep in my own understanding and application of the Dhamma by teaching it. And I never would have had that experience. I never would have. I never would understand the Dhamma in the way that I understand it and can apply it, if I didn't have this great opportunity to teach and I'll take it upon myself and be the principal initially in developing the sangha. But I'm not the only person that's here today or online, am I? We have three teachers here, one online, one who's taking care of his family. We have really an international sangha, two of them are online, that are well-focused and well-informed, we are supporting each other because we have decided and committed to practice this Dhamma with the exclusion of others. And we're all reaping the benefits of it. We have established a well-informed and well-focused sangha. I don't know if there's other ones in the world. I hope there are. I really do. I still, you know, I remember I do a search on this and using certain words. And I have yet to come across some organized group that is focused solely on what the Buddha taught, a well-informed and well-focused sangha. It's just the way it is. But we are so fortunate to have developed that. We can continue with it. Um, my words. The example of the Buddha's life, the teachings of the Buddha, the Dhamma, along with the support of the Sangha, provide, provides refuge from the suffering of distraction and ignorance arising from Dukkha. Being mindful of these three jewels concentrates the mind to what is of utmost importance. Taking refuge in the three jewels is taking great comfort in understanding that awakening is possible for any human being. The example of the Buddha's life shows that. I'm going to stop there. There's a little... And I know you all are reading these chapters, so you understand I just read a portion of it, but that's uh, today's teaching. So, um, 
it is our behavior that we bring to a well-informed and well-focused sangha. And it is probably that well-informed and well-focused sangha that we are most comfortable, at least at first, in addressing our behavior or looking at our behavior. Uh, what the hell am I talking about? Until you came here, you probably didn't even consider your behavior as key to your understanding. You probably thought it was ignoring your behavior that was a key to your happiness or your, your well-being in the moment. Because we don't want to face these most basic aspects of behavior. We think that if we, if we can get away with doing some good deeds um, and being relatively harmless in the world, we're good to go. And most of us are. Most of us live our lives that way. Most people don't hurt other people intentionally. You know, it, it takes a, a pretty disturbed mind to do that intentionally. But most of us have done it inadvertently. We've acted out in anger or, or dismissiveness to people that didn't deserve it. But more importantly than that, how do we treat ourselves? Do we treat ourselves as we deserve to be treated? Or do we treat ourselves in relation to this, these, these aspects of bad behavior? Am I too hard on myself? Do I judge myself harshly? Do I think I'm not good enough? Do I think I'm to blame? Or am I at peace with myself, no matter how I find myself? Because I am today, and it's, it's the greatest gift of all. And I know I'm far from perfect. But I'm a human being. I don't have to be. The thing that I'm most proud of is I no longer hurt people. I'm going to just about to cry. Because that's the greatest liberation when you know you're not going to. I'm sorry. All of us have had the experience most when we're very young that we acted out of frustration or anger to, probably towards a parent maybe towards a sibling, sibling and even if we didn't recognize it that started conditioning our minds that inadvertently we can hurt people and that creates a tension in our minds and we, we start going through life carrying that tension around and it reappears throughout our life and it only gets reinforced and as we get older Rather than accept that fact that we're acting out of anger and frustration, we justify it and rationalize it away. If so-and-so wasn't that way or if the world wasn't that way. And that's a lot of nonsense. But it's rooted in that initial condition aspect that I'm going to harm somebody if I act out in this way. And we lose what the Buddha would call, I'll call it self-assuredness. We lack or we lose the confidence in ourselves and we can no longer operate as calm and peaceful human beings. We can no longer operate to the, to the um, uh, extent of our abilities because we're restricting ourselves by our own conditioned thinking. The Buddha recognized it. And he said, the way for you to recognize it is to frame your life through this eightfold path and look at your speech, your action, and your livelihood. And if it doesn't fall within these guidelines, Change it. That's all. That's my talk today. Let's go online. Jeff, how are you? Well, John, thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, I've said this several times before, but I, 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 I can't express enough how much uh, this 
Sangha means to me. I, th- th- there's no possible way I could begin to develop um, this on my own. Yeah, me um, it, it just means so much to me. So let me uh, express my appreciation and thanks to everybody. As well as your teachings, John. I, I, uh, you know, my only complaint is you could have left a few breadcrumbs for me earlier because nobody told me there was a path. <laughs> yeah, I've been bushwhacking it for 50 years here. And I, yeah, That's I, a good one to put it. I, I, I appreciate the path you pointed out. Um, you, you know, things have changed a lot for me since I've been retired because it, it it's I, I've, I've retired from a world that uh, didn't seem to make this possible for me personally. Um, I just feel so fortunate to be able to uh, have the the meeting of uh, all these conditions for myself personally. Yeah. And I, I'd be really interested to hear. I, I can't imagine myself being able to develop this in the world I used to have to function in. Uh, it just it was antithetical to survival, really. Uh, and I, I'd love to hear from people how how you've been able to manage uh, engagement in society and still develop this, because uh, had I not been able to just get away from that, I, I don't think it would be possible for me. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, that's, it, that's what I've got. It, it is, though. The... Uh... Almost every sutta you hear me talk about Anathapandika's monastery. He was a, a, a very wealthy businessman during the Buddha's time. Uh, in fact, if it wasn't for him and other benefactors, we wouldn't have the Dhamma here today. Uh, but he continued in his business life, and it was because of that that he he developed the Dhamma. Anathapandika developed awakening, but he he kept in in the world of commerce the whole time. And because of that, he was able to continue to support the Buddha, too. So it is certainly possible, um, but it's more difficult. You know, the, the easy way is to go leave the world behind and, and, and stay there. Uh, I, it, honestly, I've thought about that at times, and I may at some time... You know, if you don't see me here on a Saturday morning, it's because I found some place to, to go. Yeah. So. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Uh, I can't say Brian how are you good John thank you for this Jeff I can I can tell you because I I had a conference call yesterday afternoon and I had a guy coming at me like just coming at me I just I just took it and I got I got through that call and my colleague was like how did you put up with that I was just like, well, I wasn't taking it personally. Yeah. <laughs> and I could just sit there and I could, you know, see that he was defensive. <clears throat> he was taking it personally. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, for me, like, yeah, I, it, it's it's more challenging out in the world. And you don't really realize how far you've come until you get into a situation like that. Like, oh, well, okay, yeah, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm living this now. Yeah. Have to come and so. see, yeah, and you recognize it. That's so important. Thank you, Brian. I'd still like to go live on a mountain, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I think we all would. Yeah. There'd be too many people here then. Though. Sure. Right. 
Thank you, Brian. That, that you're talking about the the intersection of, of conditioned mind and the Dhamma, and recognizing that you know you you and because you resolve those issues in yourself, you can see it in others. So, and it you you remain liberated through that that whole phone call. You know, worth the price of admission. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. Um, also responding to Jeff, um, I know John and others uh, got to observe, you know, sort of my journey because um, I, I also work in a world um, that you could think, you know, is in conflict with this. Um, but I also had a week of uh, similar to what Brian just said, where somebody was really coming at me and, um, and, and I didn't take it personally. And quite honestly, I think in, in my world, it's an affect that people bring when they want to get your attention and they bring all this drama to it and that just diffuses it. So I honestly believe Jeff that if you, had this and you were in the real world and not retired, you, you would figure out the way the rest of us have, um, because we have to, right? Because once we discover this and once we have to seek, um, have it validated every day in, in what we're doing and how we're behaving to ourselves and to others, it provides the, um, you know, the encouragement and the reward, to um that it's the right path it just is painfully obvious that there is no other path it's it's the right right way to go and that's um just very um i don't know the word but uh it's very powerful um and i i like the the teachings today john because it is so like we need that. We need to hear about the detail of the precepts in order to truly hold ourselves accountable. It, it is even in this world, it's so easy to, you know, live by a bumper sticker and do good and be good and be kind and all of that. Um, but you have to look at the life you're living and, um, you know, one step at a time address where your life is inconsistent and that's not being hard on yourself that's being generous and giving yourself the time to do that um but it it speaks to the the goal of full human maturity because by going through the precepts and aligning your behavior and your thoughts with that that's where you're headed that's where you're going to get to there's absolutely no doubt and I think most of us know that so thank you for the teaching John thank you for your teaching it was well said Mary uh, Mr. Murgatroyd how are you good morning so um I have to admit when I first read the precepts I had this like reaction to it because it seemed like Catholicism and I immediately thought of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I, and so I was like, well, that doesn't seem Buddhist to me. But then when I thought about it, it's, it made a lot of sense because um, if it, the difference is that with other religions, like in my mind, Catholicism, because that's how I was raised, yeah. there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, 
laws and principles, but it's because if you don't follow them, then you become a sinner and you don't get to heaven. But here, these are just ways to go about a life to achieve liberation in the here and now. And that makes it more practical and significant. And by the way, if you don't do it, you're going to have really crappy meditations because you're going to be thinking of all the things you're doing wrong. So it's very, you know, that, that was the difference. And then as I thought about it too, um, I see the shift in myself because before I studied the Dharma, I either broke some of the, like I was thinking of number three, like speaking gossip and speaking bad about people or being unfair to people. And, um, and number five, you know, excessively engaging in exercise and work to avoid reality. Like those two struck were ones that I did violate a lot. And the difference before I knew about the Dharma is that I either didn't know I was violating them or I had justified my reasons. And, and now having studied the Dharma, I can veer, I can see when I'm getting close to the boundary lines and I can veer myself back. Or if I slip up, I can fix it because I know it. So that's why I really appreciated the talk today. Yeah. Thank you, Anthony. Dharma teacher. Thanks, I had to jump off early, uh, John, because we're going out and meeting a friend and I didn't oh. want to miss it, but I can't stay the whole time. I'm glad you joined us. Say hello to Debbie, please. I will. Thank you. Dharma teacher Kevin. Morning, John. Morning, everybody. Um, I don't have too much to add, but I did like what people have said, you know, when you're in the world and, um, you know, sort of what's gained through this practice and being gentle with ourselves. That's, that's a, a really important thing because then we're able to be gentle with others because we, we know, we know that, uh, you know, they're, they're just living in ignorance. You know, they, they haven't found a path as Jeff said, and, and Brian's sort of hit on it too. You know, what we do is we practice our wise restraint and, and we, you know, we know better. So we're, we're that, that's an act of, that's an act of loving kindness right there by, by practicing wise restraint. So we can do that to ourselves and to others around us. So thanks everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Dama teacher, Kevin, Mark, good morning. Good to see you. Hey, hey, Jonathan. Um, yeah, I think um, this one's really interesting. There's um, especially um, uh, that <coughs> uh, and not just to people at work, like when I'll deliver something, but even to myself or something. Um, it creates like an inner dissonance, like you can feel it, like a tension. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know if my is my internet okay. I can hear you, Mark. All right, looks like you froze up, Mark. <clears throat> Mark, if you get your connection going again, just holler, please. Tom, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Um, thanks, John. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, really uh, enjoyed the teachings, enjoyed the comments. Um, as always, timely. Um, I've never once come to 
a Dharma teaching, as long as I've been in the right sort of right mood, if you like, or have the right attitude and openness and focus on the teachings, then it, it never fails to sort of point you back in the right direction in one way or the other. Um, and I think coming back to what Jeff said about, um, you know, um, uh, if, if you were still working and, you know, how on earth do you integrate these practices and then be in the sort of the world of work and, and, and all of the serious things that come with that? Um, and I've often asked myself that question because I'm I, work is a big part of my life and, 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 and what I do. Um, but I I went away, as I mentioned at very beginning i went away earlier this week with my with my nephew and i took him on a little sort of boys trip to barcelona and um it was a great trip and a great experience but i noticed it it, just because of the sort of irregular patterns of behavior we had i did hardly any um uh, meditation and i did hardly any sitting um uh, uh you know i did hardly any 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 real time or study for the dharma and I came back to the UK yesterday, and I just felt, I just felt very distracted. Mm-hmm. And and um, and today was the first time I've meditated, really since I went away. And it was a very difficult meditation. And so I, it, it's not the point I'm trying to make is, it's not just. I think it's just being in the world. I think wherever we are, we we if we're not practicing the Dharma, um, we 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 have these challenges and it's yeah. not just in our professional lives, but in our personal lives. So yeah. another, another one, which I've often thought about, which maybe somebody else can answer to sort of follow on from Jeff's question is something that it did make me reflect on was how difficult it would be to practice the Dharma with children, especially young children that are so dependent on you. Cause I just found for three or four days this week, I didn't have any time for myself and I was putting the child first the whole time. So anyway, that's, I, I, that's what I, I that's what I'm especially curious to sort of uh, uh, you know I, I don't know if anybody wants to share on that, but um, carving out time for yourself when you especially when a child is young and you're dedicating your life to basically making sure that child doesn't do something stupid <laughs> and, and raise that child appropriately. I'm interested to get some thoughts on that. But uh, other than that, thank you very much um, uh, for this teaching and for and for yeah the support and encouragement of the singer. Thank you, Tom. I was just thinking about my poor mom. She had six of us. I don't. I don't think she'd be able to develop the dharma, at least until we were gone. But there's someone here that can talk about that later, a little bit later. Mark, are you back? Do you have your audio working? Yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, it's okay. So, what do you think of your your first class back? Yeah, good. Um, actually, so I've, I've been getting the emails. My, my timetable changed. I wasn't able to make classes for, for a good few months now, but I, I still get the emails and I still dip in. And I always remember the, the feeling I have coming into the sh- session and leaving. This is just a, a general personal feeling of, 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 of clarity, um, feeling somewhat grounded, and then and then just alarm that somehow what was taught really happened to apply to what's been happening recently. And I guess that that's natural because it, it applies so well. Yeah. Um, That's what the Buddha uh, meant by it's a yeah. timeless teaching. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, feeling really good. Apologies if I, if I caused any noise when I first joined. Not at all. Um, don't, don't sweat it. I'm just glad you, you joined us. Welcome back. 
As Vinny Barbarito said, welcome back, Mr. Cater. Mm-hmm. Remember that strange <laughs> reference? Oh, I'm sorry. I think I've lost my mind this morning. Uh, yeah, that's what, that's what my, my friend, Brother Ken said. It's okay to lose your mind. You just get another one. Hello, Lauren. Good morning. Thank you so much, Sean. Um, I read the sutta last night, and my first thought was, okay, well, it's pretty simple, you know, pretty easy. Um, but as always, your teachings just bring so much um, nuance to the words on the paper and hearing everyone's examples of, you know, everyday struggles just um, really resonates. And there's so much to think about in this relatively simple sutta, but um, one thing that I've struggled with is that um, self-assurance to be fully honest with those around you, you know, either taking the form of being totally dishonest or just kind of like hiding parts of yourself because you're afraid of upsetting someone or afraid of taking up space. And um, something I'm thinking is how that's actually sort of disrespectful to not just yourself, but to the people around you, that they're yeah. allowed to experience the full honesty of life. Yeah. And that kind of ties in with the idea of cancel culture, you know, that's what we're going to call it, of building up walls to protect people from reality yep. and not allowing them to experience the fullness of reality. Um, and what you said about having that tightness of mind um, is really something that I've you know, through that not fully expressing myself, you feel kind of, you know, hindered and um, stifled. And by creating space through the Dhamma and through meditation, you create that ease rather, you know, not expressing yourself creates maybe a short-term feeling of ease, like, okay, Mm. avoided that awkward scenario, but long-term dis-ease because you're not fully expressing yourself. So I, I really feel that through the Dhamma, I am creating that space and that dispassionate ability to then just be like, well, here I am. This is life. Yeah. You know, it's not always pretty, but um, being dedicated to living an honest life yeah. and a full, that, full life. Yeah, that's it. Living an honest and full life. Yeah. How, could, how simple could it be? But because of conditioned thinking, it's not always possible. It, it is the key, you know, it, it uh, to be at peace with yourself and to be at peace with others is to, to have no hurtful thoughts towards yourself or others, no aggressive thoughts. You leave people in peace, no matter if they're Democrats or Republicans or, or Europeans or Americans or white or black or anything. We, what do we care? You know, we're just human beings living a human life. We understand it's difficult. I understand your pain. You don't have to understand mine, but right speech and right action tells me when I should keep my mouth shut. And you know I don't have any trouble keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> but it is just that. It's wise restraint. There's times when it, we, we can speak, and we speak now. Um, when we developed a Dhamma, we speak with, with a gentle authority because we're present. And we're speaking from honesty. We're speaking from our own humanity. And that really does make a difference in the world. People know when somebody's being honest. Everybody has a BS detector. I really believe that. Some people don't want to pay attention to it, you know, but we all have it. We all know when we're being put on. Thank you, Lauren. Dustin, good to see you this morning. Thank you, John. Um, I thought about when you said that the um, 
they used to throw their waste over the balcony. Yeah, you like that part of it, huh? The whole yeah, that, that's out of all the teachings, that's the part. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you focused on. It sounds like Facebook. That's what? That's Facebook, basically. Yeah. That's yes. That is. That's what. That, that's what came to mind. That's what Facebook is. Everybody's just throwing their shit over the back. That's right. Yes. And hitting everyone else. Thank you for your language and your honesty, because I right? really. That's what. That's what Facebook is. We can, can we, we should. Can you go on Facebook and put that on there, please? I'm gonna post it as soon as I get out of here. <laughs> so everybody knows how smart I am. Well, let's, <laughs> let's let's say Facebook is a chamber pot that somebody threw yeah. off a roof. Yeah. Yeah. When I was on Facebook, I was I would get involved in all of that tension of the mind by like wanting to say something clever or I'm going to say this thing and everybody's going to know and I would realize everybody would just comment the opposite and I would just be like, this is a waste of time. Yeah. But what I did want to say, like practicing the Dharma and um, and really having that space in my mind through the mindful meditation and all that, um, I'm not on social media, but I Good. do find myself this last week focusing on watching stuff on my phone about like the Canadian protest, you know, and like every day checking in with it and, and sort of feeling the violence towards the opposition, you know, and and then I I was telling Nina how I keep having dreams where I'm on my phone and my phone is very frustrating to me. I can't find anything, it won't work. And so I finally told Nina, I said, you know what? I think that my dream is telling me the phone is causing me a lot of stress. Yeah, it, it, yeah. <laughs> okay, read, read the book Stolen Focus. It, it really, we, that's really what it's all about, is how we, we carry our distractions around with us. Oh, it's 100%. And I don't think I would have had the space without this to, to notice that my dream yeah. was telling me exactly where I was distracting myself. And it was looking at that YouTube every day going... I hope this can get it. I hope they overturn that government. Whatever that, you know. Yeah. I was tapping, just like Facebook. So I'm tapping into it in another way and I didn't even realize it. Yeah. So I appreciate the space that I have now to even see in my dreams that it was sort of pointing to my awakened reality that I'm distracting again. Yeah. Yeah, if, if, we, if we take the idea of a distracted populace as uh, anti-society... These are the these are the biggest crimes that have ever been committed. Meaning, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I don't think too much. Facebook and Twitter, we 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 were just a much more. It was much more. Yeah, an old man. It was a much more gentler time when I was a kid, but it really was. It, you 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 found out what was going in the world on in the world at well in, in the country. You turned it on at five o'clock. You know, yeah. at six o'clock we're going to get the world news, and seven o'clock you were going to get some commentary. Yeah. And if you know whatever wherever way you went, that's who you listened to. And you had three choices. And it was easy and it was gentle. We learned what was going on and that was enough. You know, but now it's 24-7. And there was a time in my life I had, uh, it was usually CNN. Was just, if I was home, CNN was playing in the background no matter what I was doing. All the time. And I went nuts. You know, I literally went nuts. I hated everything. Because you know, that's all I heard. You know, you don't hear a lot of good stuff on the, whatever news you're listening to. And what does it do to you? But I do, I think it's important that we, that we understand what's going on in the world. So once a week or so, I do listen to the news for a couple hours. And I heard about that. And, you know, I have, I have my own feelings about what's going on. But they're my own feelings. You know, it doesn't matter that if I agree with the truckers or the government or the borders or anything. It doesn't matter. It's all worldly stuff. 
Yeah, you know, I like the, knowing what's going on. I just don't want to be invested in yeah, the outcome. Yeah. And again, I, I, I should... Would, I, I do think a lot about when I hear things going on in the world. I mentioned Russia going into Ukraine. And as a, as a society, we, we do seem to be on the brink of something you know, pretty big. Yeah. And it's nothing new. And it's nothing new. If we... If if Putin pushes the button and we push the button and in you know a couple of minutes we're all off this planet for good, okay, it's been an interesting life. I've you know I enjoyed it now. I'm just glad I came to the Dhamma when I did, so I I had this realization. Again, I it, to me the only thing that makes sense is to understand what it means to have a human life and to live in this moment. And nothing else really matters if I'm doing that. Again, the, the you know the big one could come today. I've been living that my whole life, but you know I. I grew up with the Cuban Missile Crisis, living in fear that the next moment's going to be it. And we really lived like that. I mean, people can remember mm-hmm. what that was like. We were all taught, we were, you know, you find out where your bomb shelters are because you're going to need them at a moment's notice. And every public building had that sign. This mm-hmm. is a bomb shelter. I don't know if they still do that, do they? Mm-hmm. Like libraries and, and municipal buildings and that kind of thing. Because you knew where they were because you knew that any minute <clears throat> those bad Ruskies are going to blow us up. And I had, no, uh, I had no foundation to get back to. I had no meditation practice. I had no understanding of what that was like. And now I do. And so I can hear these things that you're talking about and understand that's part of just living in the world. It's not, you know, we all have a position. But it's not right or wrong. It's just what, it's what human beings do when their minds are rooted in ignorance. And it's not just one side. You know? <laughs> human beings tend to be that way. Hello, Becky Sangamon. Hello. Yes, please. I have to leave in about a minute. Um, well, what do you have to say for yourself then? Dhamma teacher Rob. just wanted to um, react to Jeff and, and to others about <clears throat> applying the Dhamma in, in the present moment in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a business uh, world. Yeah, which you do every day. Which I do pretty much every day. Um, and I found that um, the first of the paramitas is is a wonderful touchstone for <clears throat> for your own behavior. Yeah. And look at you know, am I being am I being generous with my time, with my attention, with my money, um, and uh, just applying that in a in a in a business situation. Actually, in, in all of life, um, is um, makes you aware of those. You know where where greed and aversion is still lurking. Yeah. Because the only reason why you wouldn't be generous is if you're still you know carrying some greed and, and aversion around. Yeah. And, That's right. And desire. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Have, have a wonderful day, Ron. Uh, and you're so right that, that that idea of generosity should be brought to business where most people think you know all you guys should be worried about is the bottom line. There was a gentleman years ago named Paul Hawken who started, some of you might remember his name, he actually started a garden center in, in Manhattan. Crazy. You got to be crazy. And he put a lot of money into it. But it was the best garden tools you could get with the right attitude. And the guy made a fortune, but that wasn't the point. He wrote some really good books about how to live. He wasn't a Buddhist, but how to live like this in business, to be generous. And one of his acts of generosity was producing the best possible shovel 
you can make. And he did. He made a great shovel. He charged a lot of money for it. Paul Hawken. Yeah, you remember. Smith and Hawken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was, that was the beginning of that. You know, and, mm-hmm. the, and the guy, he, I mean, he naturally had this attitude of great generosity and not being afraid to charge what it was worth. Again, that's an aspect of, of, um, of honesty too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And he wasn't too concerned that there's going to be a lot of people that have to go to Home Depot for a shovel, but there were people that would appreciate a $100 shovel. Yep. Becky? Well, that's a lot to follow here. Um, <laughs> just to follow up on the Smith and Hawking, and when when you when you put the money out for that stuff, it's definitely worth it. I bought a table from Smith and Hawking in 1993, and you still have it. I st- I got rid. Of, I someone else is using it. Yeah. Now. I got tired of it. <laughs> but well, someone else is using it. That's saying something too. <laughs> it was amazing and still absolutely fine, perfect. Yeah. So anyway. That was an aside. Um, I really, I, <clears throat> taking refuge in the Sangha is what I've done this morning because everyone uh, has said things that uh, really met me where I am today. But you, John, you said the most. Uh, profound thing for me and that was that you are so happy that you no longer hurt people and you can't cry I don't know If I feel like I hurt people or if I'm hurting myself by deciding that I've hurt people. So that gives me something to think about. And if it's the latter, um, it doesn't really matter because it's a matter of forgiving yourself for things that you may that you may only be that you that you feel about what you've done in the past that you just need to let go. Okay. Um, it's hard, um, and I guess eventually you get to the point where you are, where you know you're no longer going to hurt people, and that includes yourself. Yeah. Most importantly, yourself. Thank you, Becky. You, Thank you, you, John. You mentioned the, you know, um, forgiveness is something I think is misunderstood, too, because most people think that in order to forgive, I first have to recognize the wrong that I'm forgiving. And that's not the way to do it. Forgiveness is a complete removal of any judgment. It's the, it's the literally is a depersonalization of the of the object of the situation. It, you cannot forgive unless you're not taking it personally anymore. Right, and that's why the idea of not taking things personally has always it really has this that part of the Dharma appeals to me very yeah. much, yeah. and that may that may be 
you know, part of why, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and you and need the, to know why. But. And the rest of it, when I think back, um, it, it is... It, there was one time in my life that I can think of, and I'm 66 years old now, one time that I actually hurt somebody with, with the intention to hurt somebody. And I'm, I wish it never happened, but I think that's pretty good. But I did hurt a lot of people inadvertently and out of anger, you know, you know just yelling at people or even driving around, giving people a finger because they were driving too slow and that nonsense. Um, I don't, again, I don't, I don't even think of doing that anymore. And that, that's not good for the world. That's good for me. That's yes, what, that, that's exactly. what has liberated me. Exactly. And, and, and it's the only way. That's, that's what the Buddha means when he talks about being disentangled in the world. It's not just, you know, going out to hang out in bars or something or getting involved in activities. It's that, it's that mental aspect of being entangled in the world and thinking that things need to be different. They don't need to be different. They can't be any different. How can they be? It's what's it's what's occurring. You know, again, another way to, to talk about this is a radical acceptance of each and every moment. You know? Isn't that, John, the Thank you, ultimate Thank refuge? You. That's the yeah, ultimate that's refuge. The refuge. That's yes. what we're talking about I mean, today. You find that the true refuge, if it's framed by the Eightfold Path, is you. Yeah. It's not... Something listen, you, listen to our Dhamma teacher, David. It's not something you put down when you go on vacation or you go into the office. Tom. <laughs> it's, it's, it is you. Yeah. And the refuge is that you carry that calmness. Mm-hmm. And as yeah. Lauren said, that space. And yeah. Justin said, that tension. You recognize that it arises and passes away. Yeah. That's the refuge. That was so well said. Thank Becky. you, David, for reminding me of that because I have been there, but I have difficulty staying there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's why. That's why this is so good. You keep coming back because yeah. you have been there, so you've had the Empasico experience, but staying there sometimes. You get entangled, in, and it's, and that's why then I, you have to get back. And that's why I always think, repeat. I don't judge myself harshly, and I know that Nina does this every day, that when those kids interrupt, she just simply returns to her breath and repeats. Repeat. That's right. That's right. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. I can't tell if Tom is still with us, but that's where we he took a trip to Barcelona, and it's a lot of, I mean, I notice this often, when we do something different, including a vacation, but something in our routine is different. A lot of times the Dhamma just falls away. Why? Because we're distracted. But that's not right or wrong. It's not something wrong with, with Tom's practice. He's a human being. And David, it, it, it's, just, it's just what occurs. We recognize it. Tom came back today and he's, he's reaped the benefits of his, uh, this, this session. That's Dhamma practice. Again, nobody's perfect. With or, within or without the Dhamma. We just aren't. We're not made that way. Mm-hmm. Mama Nina. <laughs> um, I would say that parenting little children keeps you present. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> because they're like that, too. So there's a part of them you just get wrapped yeah. up into. But then um, keeping it impersonal and knowing that you can't control them. 
were their behaviors and their their own little beings. <laughs> and um, being practicing the Dhamma has given me more space for that and being present in the moments that are hard without taking it personally. And motherhood in general, because I don't see them as a reflection of me anymore. Oh. Wow. And, That's you know? Huge. Yeah, that is. That's they're just, they're not. They're just their own selves, huh? Yeah, and then wow. teaching them these little concepts that I learn. That's incredible. To not get wrapped up in the past or what it could be or... Yeah, it's interesting, the little things you can pass on in daily, during breakfast, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't freak out as much anymore. You see it down. Do you see it? Isn't that great though? But that—that's—that's that's it. You don't freak out as much anymore. Yeah. You're gaining control of your mind. Yeah, because you can. That's you just unwrap too. yourself from their feeling. Yeah. Do you see it bounce back from them? Do you, like, do you see the, that little teaching? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I've been able to make decisions cle- more clearly mm. without being wrapped up in yeah. outcomes. Yeah. Outstanding. So that's it. I, I wish my mom learned that she couldn't control my behavior. <laughs> we all would be so much happier. <laughs> I'd probably be dead. <laughs> my friend Kevin, Dr. Kevin, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, and just um, really, I, I can't, I can hardly add anything that's so rich. Um, thank you for laying out these jewels before us. And as the Buddha said, the most precious jewel is the Sangha. And that is so obvious today, it just wave after wave um, and then it is deceptively simple and especially the, the paramitas, you know and, you know, someone who's like totally imperfect with the perfections but we, we still strive to achieve these perfections yep. and we have the path to do so so thank you all thank you Kevin nice I'm a teacher Jen um Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Um, so, yeah, I've been thinking about um, the space that the Dhamma has given me to have feelings, have emotions, to allow them to yeah. arise. Um, because I've, oh, you know, just always just kind of, my preference is to like be thinking and rational. And so emotions have always been something that I kind of consider to be, you know, really inconvenient. (laughs) Um, It should be defined. An emotion is a thought attached to a feeling. So yes, they are inconvenient. And... Um, not, you know, they don't always make sense. They don't always, um, you know, they come at times when I, when I don't need them right now, don't want them, you know, that kind of, that kind of conditioned thinking around it. And the Dom has given me the space to just allow a feeling of an emotion, a feeling to arise and pass away without having it take over my entire consciousness. Is that in my head? I thought that was in my head. <laughs> take over.
over my whole, you know, consciousness. And, and that is, so when I can do that, when I can allow the feelings to arise and pass away on their own, then I am more skillful in each moment that I am existing. Um, each moment. And in our culture, I feel like we're taught that, you know, feelings are something that you do later. <laughs> you kind of compartmentalize. It's not time to be feeling right now. You yep. can't be, you know, you can't be constructive. You can't be doing any math problems or English problems if you're having feelings. So you got to hold on to those feelings and have them later. Well, we, you know, we've created, we've created rooms to go have feelings in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, in my, and so that's why I've like, you caught me in like mid thought when you, I thought you were going to call on David too. So. That's why um, I called on you. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Good, good teaching technique. I Excellent. Tell you you don't want to go on the round robin because then they know when it went. Yeah. Good. Nice job. Um, that in my profession, like that in so doing in, in by not allowing for feelings to arise and pass away within myself and like having that more authentic and skillful, uh, movement through life that I'm actually modeling kind of an inappropriate, inappropriate way of behaving mm. for my students. So inadvertently, right. Inadvertently. Yeah. Right. Which goes back to what you were saying with hurting someone. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're teaching, you're literally mm. teaching someone else how to hurt themselves by what? not like allowing for a feeling to arise and pass away and, and, and deal with that in the moment. And yeah. so that's been, um, kind of my, and that's sort of like what Nina was saying. It's kind of in there too. It's like, you know, it just goes back to what am I doing? Yeah. What, what is, yeah. how can I take care of myself? How can I make the space for myself? How can I, cultivate my being my own refuge in order how can to, you yeah well practice the dhamma <laughs> that's right yeah so um i have to do that I, that is the only way to be kind but can i correct you just a little others. bit absolutely yes you're please, a please, 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 please. you yes. don't have to do it it's up to you mm-hmm. if you want uh, a common peaceful mind then you have to do it yeah but, you know it's an important point this is Nobody's right, right, there's right. there's no over you know there's no crazy bald guy that makes you do this. It's yeah, up to you. Yeah. There's no god. There's no structure. You know that the 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 dharma is just as um, uh, loose and accessible as it's yeah. ever been. In other words, it's not it's not confined in in an ideology yeah. or even an outcome. It's just it's just this. Yeah. Just if this. you want a calm and peaceful mind. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want it, do it. Yeah. You know, where it's it's up to me if I if I reach the culmination. It's not up to beliefs. Mm-hmm. I got to do a little work, but it's it's e- It's simple, not always easy. I'm getting better at saying it's simple mm-hmm. and easy. But I still think it's easy. It's easier, isn't it? It's easier. It's easier to to have this understanding than than to not. Tell my teacher, David. John, I think I will let. It's not a member of Jen have the last word. <laughs> okay, I think that's a good idea. 
<laughs> You're good? I'm good, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that I think word. that last, last word. word yeah, before. what I already said, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That was good. That was a, a great class. You know, this... Um, the Truth of Happiness book is designed in a certain way, and this is this is the, the David's going to teach um, a class on Tuesday that's part of the book, but it's not part of the study. <clears throat> but it's such an important sutta, and I should say it's the first time in our sangha that somebody besides me has taught the Anattalakana Sutta. So I'm looking forward to it. But the reason why we conclude the the Dhamma study is just this: we conclude in this the whole point of taking refuge. It's, it's such an important understanding what that means. A human being actually did this. He left his teaching so we can do it. And we have the structure of well-informed, well-focused Sangha to actually do it. None of us can really do it alone. You know, I know I, it, again, like I said, I had a really nice practice and I thought I was quite well along the way to awakening, um, but I wouldn't have had the depth of understanding of what Four Noble Truths mean without all of you and what all of you have said over the years. You know, I've, I've taught... I think about this every now and then, and the thought astonishes me that I've taught about 1,300 classes, approximately. Mm. That, the, the ability to do that, to interact with the Dhamma, is, I, I mean, what did, Lou Gehrig, today I consider myself the luckiest man. I do. And you should all feel the same way, because you found a true refuge. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, just a quick announcement, probably won't be that quick. Sorry, the class went on so long. Um, our, re our 2022 retreat, and there's only going to be one this year, and that's going to be the model. Let me just explain that first. Me and the rest of our teachers decided on a new uh, retreat schedule. We're going to do um, probably a midwinter or very early spring uh, hybrid retreat here and online. We're going to do one in the fall or early winter. Uh, and then we're going to have a residential retreat at Juan Dharma Center in the summer. This year, the dates are June 29th to May 3rd, with an option to stay to the 4th of July. And it'll be a, a June 29th to July 3rd. What did I say? May 3rd. Oh, man, we've been saying that. I think that was the <laughs> original date. You're going backwards in time. Backwards, yeah. okay, we're going to stay. It's a, it's a long retreat from June 29th <laughs> to May 3rd. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> It's only got to cost yeah, fourteen million dollars <laughs> each to do it. But. We'll do that. So, yeah. Well, this is we're on retreat. July 29th to uh, June 29th to July 3rd, with an option to stay to July 4th. That Sunday afternoon and Monday is going to be our teachers and training retreat, where they're going to present for the first time. Uh, and I thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.